Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. So if you think about this, you're an account manager, you've got 20 customers. You know that 80% of your revenue is only going to come from 20% of those customers. So what is it you do? You focus on those customers, that 20%. What we discovered was they were ignoring all the rest. These relationships and these different types of relationships, or if you want to think about it as like the strength of the bond between people, that doesn't arrive magically. Part of the reason that Dunbar's research became so interesting to people was social media. Some of the terms that we use in social media imply relationships that aren't there or that are stronger than they really are. Hi, this is Colin, and I wanted to ask you a favour. It would really help Ryan and I if you could spend a moment and complete a review of the podcast. Positive reviews help us get out to more people, and we love hearing from our listeners and seeing what people have written. So please, just take a moment and complete a review. Thanks very much for your help. So Ryan, back in the day, I used to work at British Telecom, and I got promoted one day. Only for one day. I was only promoted for one day. <laughs> and then they realized what a bad decision it was. Colin, you, you had a good run. It lasted longer than any of us expected it to. So. Yeah. Oh, well, the podcast got off to a good start, hasn't it? Classic. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I got promoted and I took over running this call center down in uh, Bristol, which is um, a city in uh, sort of the southwest of the UK. I always sort of look back on that time with sort of fond affection because I, I felt I knew everybody there. There was about 150-odd people there, and I felt that, you know, I could recognize everybody. I knew what their backgrounds were. I knew about, you know, a bit about their families and what motivated them and everything else. And it and it always felt to me like a tight-knit group. And as my career moved on, I ended up managing three and a half thousand people globally. Mm -hmm. And just you, you just can't know that amount of people, you know? It just gets to the point where it's just too many, basically. And they, I don't want to say it, but people, not just numbers, but dealing with three and a half thousand people, you, you just can't know everybody, obviously. Well, the people aren't just numbers, but at a certain point, you are forced to almost deal with them as if they were. Like you just, yeah. you can't process them as people at the same depth. Yes, absolutely. So today we're going to talk a little bit about what's called the Dunbar number. Let me ask you the question. What's the Dunbar number? So Dunbar's this anthropologist, I believe he is, at Oxford. Uh, he's British, so we could actually even call him a bloke. Dunbar's a bloke. Um, yeah, Robin, isn't it? Robin Dunbar. That's right. And he was interested in the same kind of question that you were, which is around group sizes and how do people and other animals process group sizes. He started off studying apes, chimps, and monkeys, 
in their social networks. And he found that there was, there was kind of remarkable similarity in size of these social groups that these apes communed with. And it was highly correlated with the size of a certain region of their brain. So they could kind of predict how large a monkey's social circle would be based on the the size of its brain, or at least of a part of its brain. And they extrapolated out to what that social circle size would be of acquaintances for humans, given the size of our brain. And they came up with this number that was in the neighborhood of 150. And when they went out looking for evidence of this, so one of the, the studies that they ran was looking at how many people sent Christmas cards to. So tallying up the total of, of the households of all the people that sent Christmas cards out, they got something that was in the neighborhood of 150. Right? And they've, they've measured this in a bunch of different ways. And it seems that that, that 150 number keeps, keeps popping up with regards to how many people we could process. And so that came to be known as Dunbar's number or the Dunbar number. Yeah, and we'll put a couple of links in the show notes, that article and um, a TED Talk by uh, Robin Dunbar as well that you may be interested in looking at. But when I learned about this a few years ago, I thought, bloody hell, yeah. It's just one of those things where you go, yeah, intuitively that just feels right. And when I reflected back to my time at this Bristol call centre and running this Bristol call centre, it made me go, yeah, because I knew people there. I felt I knew people. And clearly, if it's less than 150, you, you obviously still know. It felt the maximum. It felt that I lost I went, there's an interesting phrase, actually, maybe that maybe this is the case, but I lost touch when it got above that 150 mark and you therefore then had to change the way that you, you led the organisation. And obviously what then happens, and particularly if you look at it from a military perspective, I don't know what the correct phrase is, I think it's a troop, but that's around 150 people and therefore... The point I'm trying to make about the leadership piece is breaking those groups down into 150s. And if my memory serves me correctly, I think 3M do that very well, looking at group sizes of about 150 people. So a manager and then a management team, not 150 direct reports, but a, you know, a, a unit, as it were, being a, a group size of about 150. It provides some interesting insights in terms of managing people. I mean, one of the the most interesting things to me about Dunbar's research and, and the Dunbar number is the fact that it seems to have some root in biology. So yeah. it's not like eh, 150 and then you're just kind of bored with people. And so you choose to do something else. It, it seems like the, the part of our brain that is designed to manage social interactions has some caps on it that, that may be biological. And so forcing your way past that, creating teams that are much larger than this, you're up now against biological constraints. You're you're going to be kind of suboptimal from just a, a human perspective. So, you know, learning little things about like this, about the way people process social information can potentially lead to more efficient interactions within organizations if we we recognize that these are these are limits that are just harder for us to get around no absolutely and and one of the other things in the the article that we'll uh, put in the show notes there's a great image that he produced which talked about as other numbers so let me read these through this is a problem with the podcast because you, you can't show people a picture but basically what he was saying is that typically there are like five people that are very close to you so your loved ones and there are then 15 good friends and 50 friends 
and obviously these comes all, all the way down to definitions but you know again these numbers feel intuitively right you know 50 friends 150 meaningful contacts so that would be you know that dunbar number 500 acquaintances and 1500 people who you can recognize so there are i go and watch um luton town football club play when i'm in england and there are people that sit around me that i recognize i don't you know i may have said good afternoon or that was a foul or whatever it may be i wouldn't profess to know them but i I would recognize them and again those all of those numbers felt quite intuitively correct did they for you as well yeah i mean a, a couple of things to to recognize about research like this these are averages so there are people who are very social, very outgoing. You know, the Christmas card data, for example. Is this you justifying the fact that you've only got one friend? I'm, I'm getting there, Colin. <laughs> Give me a chance. You, you just bumped out two circles uh, by that comment, right? You were a friend, now you're an acquaintance. So watch it. You've only got so many circles to go. Yeah, but these are averages. There are some people who have much, much larger and some people who have much smaller. Yeah. But on average, this is about where most people are. So this resonated for Colin and it did for me when I read about it. If you were thinking, well, that, that's not right. I feel like I've got a much larger circle of, of meaningful context than that. That may be true for you. But on average, this seems to hold pretty well for most people. Uh, the other part is Dunbar is not the final word on this. So there are people who disagree, who think that the evidence points to larger circles on average or other people who have different models of this. We're reporting it, though, because it does have a lot of data at this point backing it up. And it is a really useful framework for thinking about relationships and thinking about the way that that these things go on. The Intuitive Customer Podcast is brought to you by Beyond Philosophy. Since 2002, Beyond Philosophy has been helping organizations improve their customer experience through their consulting, training, and research services. Find out more at beyondphilosophy.com. That's beyondphilosophy.com. The other interesting part for me is his point about it's actually where you spend your time. Yeah. So if you break it down and go, well, where do you spend your time? Now, I guess I'm in a sort of a typical relationship where my wife will spend a lot more time in cultivating her friends than I do. Now, whether that's just a male thing, I don't know. But she will spend a lot more time talking to friends and chatting to people than I do, basically. The issue becomes where you're spending your time. Let me tell you this interesting story. Oh, I think it's interesting anyway. But I think it sort of shows an interesting insight because I was thinking about this from a business perspective. So my career at BT was primarily spent in the business-to-business arena. Yeah. Okay. And in the business-to-business arena, we had, and again, this is pretty typical of of most business-to-business companies, large companies, we had key accounts, yeah, so, you know, the ones that spent the most. You then sort of had normal accounts. They weren't called normal, just normal accounts, yeah, and you had an account manager that, you know, the key account, a person would be managing one or two accounts. For a normal account, they would be managing, I don't know, 15 accounts. And then we had a structure underneath that, which was at that stage called telephone account management. So basically, you know, people on the phone calling people, but not... Nobody dedicated to it. Yeah, but they had like two and a half thousand accounts. Now, the point I'm trying to make and sort of why I'm I'm raising it here was one of the really interesting things that we found was 
when we were doing work in looking at, well, how many accounts should an account person have? What we discovered was that the teams that had those sort of normal group of accounts, so not in between the key accounts and the telephone account management, those sort of normal accounts, whilst they would have something like 20 customers or 20 accounts, obviously within that account, you can have lots of other contacts. The point I'm trying to get to is that what we found was that in 80% of the cases, again, rough numbers, or in a lot of the cases, it was the 80-20 rule. So in other words, 20% of those customers would produce 80% of the revenue. So if you think about this, you're an account manager, you've got 20 customers, you know that 80% of your revenue is only going to come from 20% of those customers. So what is it you do? You focus on those customers, that 20%. And you effectively, what we discovered was they were ignoring all the rest. (laughs) And now extrapolate that across the whole of the organization. That was suddenly a whole load of customers that were important customers, but nobody was really taking care of them. And why? Because they knew that they would get 80% of that revenue in that top 20%. And therefore, by definition, uh, and again, this is the point I'm trying to get to here, is go, that's where they were spending their time. And that's the important piece here is where are people spending their time? And this goes to one of my favorite sort of views of life, which is if you really want to find out what people do, then just look at their calendars. Obviously, usual thing, there's a difference between what people say and what they do. But if you look at their calendars, that tells you the truth about where they're spending their time. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely right. Yeah. So these these relationships and these different types of relationships, or if you want to think about it as like the strength of the bond between people, that doesn't arrive magically, right? It's not just like the connection between two people instantaneously. This research from Dunbar and others suggests that it's largely a function of time. So how much time do you put into this relationship? That'll kind of shift which circle these people are in. And as you spend less time with somebody, I mean, we've all had the experience where you are super close with somebody and then one or the other of you moves away. And even though there's email and phone and, you know, now video chat, just not having that proximity, not getting to see them every day, they rapidly move from being a loved one or a very close friend to, you know, being an acquaintance and someone you still think very fondly of. But in terms of the strength of that relationship, it's weakened for no other reason than just it becomes more difficult to spend time with them. Yeah, no, absolutely. Then the interesting thing is because you, you end up taking a step back and you go, so what? Yeah, mm-hmm. usual sort of challenge for me. What you then realize is that there are clearly tools that we use in business to stay in contact with people. Now, that can be emails that are personalized that looks like I'm sending an email to it's someone. It's like an individualized and, contact, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The challenge is that typically people can read read through those things, you know. (laughs) But there are tools that that, and then when you look at the whole area, clearly, of social media, you know, I mean, I've got 289,444, as of this morning, followers on LinkedIn. And you know and appreciate each and every one of them. Everyone. Yes. I know them personally. Just fire a name at me and I'll be able to tell you who they are. Uh, (laughs) But clearly I don't, okay? However, there are a group of people that I do know. And again, I I would encourage people 
to reach out to us and say hello and drop us a line on LinkedIn or contact us at, through our email at contact at beyondphilosophy.com. So contact at beyondphilosophy.com. Simply because it is good to hear from people and un- to understand them. And what you're trying to do is you do want to try to sort of understand what people are thinking, feeling, and you know what our listeners do. But the point again I'm trying to make is you can't stay in contact with that group of people, but there are tools that enable those things to, to happen. Part of the reason that Dunbar's research became so interesting to people was social media. And some of the u- the terms that we use in social media kind of imply relationships that aren't there or that are stronger than they really are. So when you talk about your yeah. Facebook friends, uh, some people have networks of friends on Facebook that number in the thousands. And those aren't friends. I mean, they're they're not friends. And so these social media relationships can be real relationships. When I was active on Facebook, there were a number of people in my field that I came to know through Facebook that then subsequently became, you know, very good friends. So I, this is not in any way trying to talk down on social media or, or say that it's it's useless or not real. It is, and it can be very much so. But it's also not the case that everybody that you are connected with in some way online is a close friend. And I think recognizing that we have these these different tiers of relationship can also help us manage our, our social media lives a little bit better, I think. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because you, you say that about Facebook, and I, I would totally, totally agree with you. But again, it goes back to where you're spending your time, because you may have 500 friends, in quotes, on Facebook, okay, or wh- whatever platform it is. But if someone is commenting on your comments in fact it makes me think of there's a young lady on LinkedIn who regularly comments on the blogs that I put up I'm not going to tell you her name but I know it (laughs) okay why because she has taken the time to put comments in there to give me feedback to say that she agrees or disagrees or whatever else but it's in that time that makes me then feel I've got more of a connection to her. And because of that, if she then said, hey, Colin, you know, what's your advice on this or whatever else, I'd be more willing to give that, give her the advice than if somebody who I've never sort of met before in my life. Because, again, you're always a little suspicious about, well, why are people just asking you these questions or whatever, whatever it may be? Oh, I, I think that's absolutely true. And then the reverse is true too, where if you want a stronger social media presence, your willingness to engage with people one-on-one goes a long way. I remember my daughter, when she was you know, 12 or 13, commented on some YouTuber's video that she liked. And the YouTuber wrote back to her, commented back specifically, just thanking her for her comment or whatever. She talked about that for six months. Like she, yeah. <laughs> she was so excited that this D-list YouTube celebrity had um, acknowledged her personally. It's a real thing. I mean, it's a real a meaningful thing uh, when we connect with people, even, even in that social media space. I totally agree. One of the best bits of advice that I was given in the early days of social media was, remember that social media is social. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, that's a good point. So don't just post things and don't comment on it. Too many treated as a broadcast medium. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely.
Okay, so what are the recommendations? What does this mean? What does it mean that people should do? Do you want to go first or would you want me to go first? I'll go first. So some of this is definitely applicable to business, but I think that a lot of Dunbar's research is also useful for us from an interpersonal standpoint. You and I talked about this before we started uh, recording today, but it's interesting to think about Dunbar's research from the perspective of the pandemic and how that's changed our behavior. You know, if relationships are a function of, of time spent, well, now a lot of that time that was kind of incidental, we didn't go to work intending to spend time with our work acquaintances. It just happened as a function of the work that we were doing. A lot of those have been massively disrupted now. You know, and, and you may not see your neighbor as you're taking your garbage out anymore and, and hang out and chat for 20 minutes as you, you used to do, because now there's a pressure to, you know, keep away from each other or, you know, you don't go to the same watering holes that you used to. That's potentially very detrimental to us. And so I would encourage us all to rededicate that time in whatever medium is appropriate for the times we're in. I have a group of friends who... The four of us all lived in Atlanta and we would get together for lunch every month or so. And then two of these four friends independently moved away. They're professors and they moved to different schools. And so we didn't see each other as much. And so we started a weekly Zoom call with the four of us. And so we actually now are getting together more often than we did when the four of us all lived in the same city. And it's been wonderful. It's been great to be able to catch up with these folks every week. And, you know, we chat for half an hour or 45 minutes or so. And and so there are, there are opportunities to spend that time even in this new world that we're living in. So that's one, uh, dedicate the time. The other thing that I would point out to our listeners, and this comes from Dunbar's research, this is an insight that he pointed out in one of his TED Talks, but relationships cost us something in terms of time and effort and this kind of biological capacity for social relationships. As we invest time in a relationship, we are inherently investing that time less somewhere else or with other relationships. So as with cognitive resources and a lot of other things we talk about, our relationships are precious. And so I would encourage you to spend that time and energy wisely and make sure that you are cultivating those relationships that lift you up and inspire you and strengthen you so that those who are in your most inner circles, the ones that you're spending the most time and energy on, are also doing you the most good and giving you the opportunity to do the most good for them in return. Yeah, no, good points. So let me add to to those. A couple of things I, I would add. One is just remember this, think about this from a leadership standpoint and just remember that type of number. So depending on obviously how senior you are in the organization, but it intuitively does feel right to me. So if you're starting to create an organization that's got 500 odd people in, think about, well, is that, how have we structured that? Should we be moving it into more units of 150 people, whatever, roughly that number? So think about it from that sort of leadership perspective. And then I think from the other point of view that I would I would encourage people to think about it from is just goes back to that sort of account manager, how many people should an account manager have? How many customers should an account manager have? And again, let me be careful with my words here because there's a difference between an account and the number of customers within that account. Think about it a bit further we were really surprised when we found out that it was that 80-20 rule, yeah? 
And I think that that would apply to many different organizations. So think about where people are actually spending their time and do some form of analysis of where people are, are spending their time and consider whether that's the what you want them to do or not. The other thing that I would add into that is Ryan just mentioned about sort of relationships and meeting up with his friends and doing all those things. Well, guess what? The same applies in business, A, from a team perspective, and B, again, from a customer perspective. If you've got an account manager that never talks to his customer, then that's a bit of an issue, basically. I would encourage you to look at the article that we'll put in there from the BBC, which shows those circles going out of, you know, five loved ones, 15 close contacts, I think it was. But look at that and then think about, well, how does that apply to our customer base? Which are our main customers? Where are we, are we spending enough time with those customers? And think about it from that perspective as, as well. So the last thing I would say is this. Please, it really does help us when you reach out to us and let us know how we're doing. So I would really encourage you to get in contact with Ryan and I some way, either through LinkedIn, which obviously is where I spend a lot of my time. So just drop us a, a line on LinkedIn or drop us a line on um, contact at beyondphilosophy.com. Again, that email address is contact at beyondphilosophy.com because it's always great hearing from the listeners and hearing what you're saying, whether it's good or bad, just making a contact. Yeah, please make sure you do that. So thanks very much. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Cheers. Just as a reminder, please, could you complete a review of the show? And that would really help us. Thanks very much. This has been the Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.